2 Timothy chapter 2, 14 to 26. It says, Remind them of these things. Charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We have taken the past two weeks to look at the prophecies in Isaiah and elsewhere in the Bible, all pointing to this coming Savior. We celebrated his birth last week, and that Savior, of course, is Jesus Christ, our King. Let me remind you what Paul was telling us at the beginning of 2 Timothy. Paul was writing about men in the church and how Timothy is to identify and entrust the preaching of the gospel of the King Jesus to faithful men. He is reminding Timothy about the gospel, and he's encouraging Timothy. Even though Paul is in chains for the gospel, the gospel itself is never chained. At the end of chapter 1, we are introduced to some individuals that have not been faithful with the gospel, or to Jesus, or to Paul for that matter. And we will pick up their story and what to do with them in our passage today. It is true that even when Paul was still alive, there were faithful and unfaithful, true and untrue Christians in the church. How do we deal with faithlessness in the church? What is the correct response to unfaithful individuals? And how do we soften our hearts of stone to become usable for God's honorable work? I've broken down these questions into three main points for today's sermon. Uh, I've entitled it The Problem, The Response, and The Solution. The problem starts in verse 14. Uh, Paul states, remind them of these things and charge them before God. So we have two things that Paul is reminding Timothy to do, two directives, if you will. And the first one is to remind them of these things, and the second is to charge them. 
Now, remind in the Greek is a present imperative tense. And that's just a fancy way of saying it's meant to be ongoing. It speaks of an ongoing action. So Paul is saying to Timothy, keep on reminding them. Keep on telling them the things that they need to know. And it's not just Paul that is giving the command to remind, but also Peter does in 2 Peter 1, 12-13. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up in way of reminder. And again in 2 Peter 3, 1, Peter states, This is now the second letter that I am writing you. Beloved, in both of them, I am stirring you up to sincere mind by way of reminder. Why do both of these great men of the faith think it is so important to remind fellow believers? Why do they feel like they must write all these letters to them simply to remind them of the truth? I think it's because we leak. We, we hear God's word and we are filled with the spiritual water of God's word, but by the time you get to wherever you need to use it, a lot of the water, that is God's word, seems to have leaked out. Reminding, that's what pastors do. They keep filling us up, as it were, with holy water. And we need them to remind us, because as soon as we hear the word of God, we start forgetting. We just sort of leak that information out. And we need to be reminded or filled up over and over again by faithful men of what God's word says. Quite frankly, I need to be reminded over and over again. Do you know when I'm especially forgetful? It's when I'm going through hard times. When I'm going through scary times, it's like I just can't dredge up a single promise, a single scripture or hope from God's word. It's like my heart hardens just a little. You know, if I'm preparing a Bible study, I'm constantly reminded of different scriptures, and they just come to me. But when I'm going through a hard season, I kind of start to fall apart, and I can't remember a single verse. My mind goes blank, and I need to be reminded. I need people to remind me of the promises of God. So when you are present with someone, and they are going through a hard time, and you are encouraging them with God's word... And they say something like, I know what the scriptures say. You need to respond with, I know that you know, but you need to be reminded and soften your heart. When we face the problem of unfaithfulness in the church, it is hard, and we need reminding to continue on the right path. Reminding is what pastors need to do, but it's not all they need to do. Paul says you also need to charge them before God especially when we fail to heed the reminders. The word charge in the Greek means to solemnly warn. Now, this isn't as fun. Elders have to warn people about the track that they're on. If it's a dangerous track or a destructive trap, they have to warn them not to go there, and it's not an easy task. Oftentimes, it is met with harsh resistance due to people's stubborn pride and their hearts of stone. This is often when church discipline comes into the picture, when the elders at a church are trying to correct someone from the destructive path that they're going on, and that person is unwilling to see his error and change his ways. In Paul's case, he has to charge the people not to quarrel about words. He is warning them, or charging them before God, not to quarrel 
about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Quarreling about words. I guess they did that a couple of thousand years ago. It's sure a good thing that they don't do that now, isn't it? No, that's not true. We still get caught up in it. It's something about human nature. We just like to major on the minors, quarreling about words. Now, this does not mean that we should never disagree. Paul just finished saying that we have to charge people or solemnly warn them. And showing them that they are wrong means showing them from Scripture where they are wrong. The scriptures must always be our guide. We must remain true to what it says above all else. However, in, within the scriptures, there are minor issues that can be interpreted in different ways. These issues are worth working through so long as two things are happening. We are not quarreling over them just for the sake of quarreling. And we are looking for the answers in the word. We're not just quarreling about words. Now, in verse 15, he tells us what to look for in trying to identify what this problem is. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. There's an interesting thing. The words, do your best, as they're translated here in the English, means be zealous. To present yourself to God as one approved. This is a very important thing for a young pastor, in Timothy's case, or for an elder to hear. We are to present ourselves to God for his approval, not to man. A pastor or a leader of a church is never to be concerned with or worried about the approval of men or women, because that is a trap. If you're focused on that, first of all, you're not going to be focused on being approved by God. And secondly, you're not going to be telling people what they really need to hear, because sometimes it's hard to hear. And quite frankly, it's hard to say. And if you are seeking their approval, you will hold back from telling them what needs to be said, charging them, for example, to stop quarreling about words. And then the passage goes on to a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Why would a pastor be ashamed? And why why is Paul warning us not to be ashamed? Well, if Cody, Coleman, or I stand up here and exhort you in the word of God, and yet we do not live out our daily lives, we are shamed, and not just in ourselves, but to the gospel that we are preaching. We are reminded of this again in 1 Corinthians 9.27. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And how do I become disqualified? by not following the very words that I would preach to you. And so Paul is exhorting Timothy here to do his best so that he will not be disqualified, so that he will not be ashamed after he has preached the word. And then he wraps up verse 15 with rightly handling the word of truth. In other translations, it's rightly dividing the word of truth. The Greek word here for handling or dividing literally means cutting a straight line. You need to cut a straight line when it comes to the word of God. And if you run into a rock in your path, don't veer to the left and don't veer to the right. You just go straight down the line on this. You keep to what the word says, and you don't add your own opinions, and you don't say, well, I think, and wouldn't it be nice... No, it's not about that. It's about cutting a straight line through the word. 
And we've gotten away from this from in the body of Christ. And one of the main reasons for this is because we ignore whole portions of the Bible. Sadly, in a lot of churches today, they don't take everything from Genesis to Revelation as gospel truth. They pull from a section here that's easy to hear. And they pull from a section there that's fun and encouraging. And they leave out the hard truths and the difficult things to hear in the Bible. For example, the churches that preach the prosperity gospel. I don't need to say much more about that. Or the churches that only preach topically from many different passages, or even from different stories, whether they be biblical or not. And some even have the audacity to not use the Bible at all and play sections of movies and secular movies at that, and preach from them, trying to correlate some sort of gospel connection. This leaves their hearers weak and unable to discern truth from lies. That is why teaching systematically through the books of the Bible and the Bible as a whole is so important. Because we get the entire counsel of God's will. We don't get to cherry pick. We don't get to focus only on the comfortable passages. But on every word of God. That leads us to maturity and to growth as children of God. Another thing that can keep us from rightly dividing the word of truth is when we have more loyalty to particular theological camps than to the word itself. Whether that be different views on eschatology or baptism, Calvinism, or, or whatever else. Now, these camps are set up on real issues in the word. And it's beneficial to understand what we believe and why. But we shouldn't hold more firmly to our camp than the word. We should only be in that camp because we think it's the best way to express what the Word of God says. And we should be willing to allow Scripture to change our minds. Scripture must be first before all. So don't just sit in your camp, but trailblaze a straight line and a narrow path to and through the Word of God. As a personal example, I was in the camp of antinomianism. That's just a big word for a faulty theory that because we have been saved through grace, we can now live any way we see fit, even if it is in open sin. Um, entertainment was the snare for me. For the longest time, I would say that I believed in Jesus, and yet I concerned almost all of my time and mental energy with entertaining myself. My particular form of entertainment was video games. I would live, work, take care of my family just for those few precious hours at night to play video games. And I was leading my family on a path that veered from the word of God. The Lord convicted my heart of this. He showed me my evil desire and how my desire was not for my family or for him or for his family, the church. When I finally submitted to the Lord's guidance through his word and through his spirit, I was able to say no to that incredibly strong desire for my own entertainment. Instead, I started delighting myself in him, his family, and my family. And when I did, he gave me a depth of understanding of his word that I did not have before. A desire for his good things in the world and the ability to see the world's entertainment for what it truly is. 
the snare of the devil. Do you know what Paul calls topics that have not been rightly handled or rightly divided? Well, in verse 16, he calls them irreverent babble. If we sit in our theological camps without humbling ourselves and returning again and again to the word, if we continue to quarrel about words, then it is nothing but irreverent babble. And if this irreverent babble is allowed to continue, all it will do is lead the hearers to more and more ungodliness. There are dire consequences when we do not rightly handle the word of truth. If we swerve from being approved by God and are more concerned about being approved by men. And one of these consequences could be gangrene. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them is Hymenaeus and Philetus. Isn't that just a lovely word picture? Gangrene? The American Heritage Dictionary defines gangrene as death and decay of bodily tissue, often occurring in the limb caused by insufficient blood supply and usually followed following injury or disease. Another definition for it is a disease ending in putrid decay. Gangrene is nothing to play around with. In the first definition, it is caused by insufficient blood supply. It's sort of like when we quarrel about words, we are choking off the life-giving blood supply of the gospel, not only to ourselves, but all of those who hear us. Paul goes on to be quite bold in verse 17 and 18 and calls out the two individuals in Timothy's church as examples of exactly what he's talking about here. And he tells what they were saying, that the resurrection had already happened. They have swerved from the truth, and they are teaching others to swerve as well. The outcome of this is that they are upsetting the faith of the people that they are teaching. When we believe something that is contrary to what the Word of God plainly says, we find that oftentimes we lose our peace, our joy, and our confidence. And these are ways that God is trying to tell us something is wrong, that we have believed something that is not on the straight and narrow, and that we are not handling the word of truth rightly. Christians, when we hear some new doctrine or teaching, whether it is at work or on a podcast or even from a pulpit, and we feel like we lose our peace, we need to go home and pull out our Bibles and read what the word of God says and let that be our guide. Let us say no to these teachings if they do not reflect what the Bible already says. Or let us accept them if they do line up with Scripture. You see, when we hear the Word of God rightly divided, it will always bring peace, hope, and love in our lives. Now, it might challenge our beliefs that we've held for a very long time. Most of these are from different camps that we have grown up in or joined earlier in our walk with God. This might be challenging, and that can be a good thing, even though it is difficult, and we may be unsettled for a time, but the peace of God should remain with us. And what did Paul say about peace? He said, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Now that word rule means to be the referee, to tell you what is right and wrong based on the peace that God gives you. God will give peace when the word is being rightly divided. Now, Paul's response to these problems is two illustrations. 
First, an example of the Old Testament, and second, a parable of sorts. In verse 9, 19, we see a stark contrast to the irreverent babble and the ungodliness being spread by some. In God's foundation stands firm. It is not Babel that will fall away, but it is firm, unmoving, just like the earth. And it is bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. These two quotes come to us from Numbers 16 in the story of Korah's rebellion. The reading from the Old Testament this morning is this passage. And I would like to focus on a few key similarities that we find there. Korah and his cohorts were right about a few things. They were the children of God. They were chosen of God. They were chosen as priests of God. And they were part of the congregation. But not the chosen mouthpiece of God. They were discontent with this and chose to rise up against Moses and Aaron. You see, Korah had hardened his heart against what the Lord had decreed. He came to a teaching that he could not submit to. So he chose his own glory and will. And in verse 4, we see Moses make a great statement. In the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one he chooses, he will bring near to him. Paul is paraphrasing Moses here in saying that the Lord knows whose are his. This can be a very encouraging thing for those who put their faith in Christ Jesus, in his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. Or it can be a very scary thing for people who do not have that same faith in Christ. It's a dividing statement. It's a cutting statement. The Lord knows those that are his. As we continue in the story of Korah's rebellion, we see the two sides being set up, Moses and Aaron and Korah and all of his confederates. God makes his choice and actually is going to condemn the whole congregation, but Moses and Aaron intercede and God judges just those who who have risen up against him instead of the whole congregation. And as a way of mercy, he instructs Moses to tell everyone to depart from these wicked men and where the wicked men are before the judgment falls. They are to leave iniquity, depart from sin, all of those who claim the name of the Lord. So in these two quotes, Paul clarifies what God is responsible for and what we are responsible for. God knows and will judge those who are his. That's his responsibility. Our responsibility is to make sure we are departing from sin. And that's why Paul is using these two quotes from this particular story, because he is the very same issue. Hymenius and Philtus have swerved from the truth. They are challenging what Paul has already said about the resurrection, and they too have hardened their hearts, just like Korah did of old, who challenged what God said about Moses and Aaron. These two men have started influencing others in the body of Christ saying that the resurrection has already happened. And they are upsetting the faith of some, and Paul cannot stand for that. Now, Paul switches from an Old Testament example and gives us a parable about a great house in verses 20 and 21. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Now, the great house that Paul was talking about are all 
is the church. And in the church, we find vessels of gold and silver for honorable use. But we also find vessels of wood and stone for dishonorable use. They are all in the house. They are all part of the church. And yet, Paul makes a very distinct difference. He does this intentionally after giving us the examples of Korah's rebellion. In Korah's rebellion, they were all part of the children of Israel. They were all called out of the land of Egypt. They all wandered in the desert. But God had given different people different jobs. Some, like Aaron and Moses, were honorable vessels of gold and silver, and God used mightily. And some, like Korah and those who followed him, God intentionally used and had prepared for dishonorable use. Don't miss that. God had prepared them. God knows whose are his. He will use the people who are gold and silver for honorable use. They will be set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And the Lord knows who are his. There are people in the church that are not his and are of wood and stone, like Hymenaeus and Philtus, that are for dishonorable use. The same is true today. Not everyone in the church has been selected by God. We all know of people, perhaps when we were growing up, perhaps when we were adults, that have left the church, left the faith even, and caused a mess of the body of believers in the process. They were of dishonorable use. Yes, they were part of the church. Yes, they took part in the fellowship for a time. They covenanted. They took communion. They believed, and yet they were not honorable. Just like Hymenaeus and Philtus, who were standing against Timothy and Paul's teachings. Oftentimes, when we go through the Bible, God will lead us from truth to truth. He will show us his amazing work that he has done through the entirety of the word of God. But sometimes we run against truths that are in his word that are plain and easy to read, but we don't like what it says. It goes against what we have already been taught, either by different camps or theologies or just by the world at large. And it's difficult for us to change our thinking. And yet, there it is, in the word of God, plainly spoken, God's truth. In some ways, we all have trouble with this. The difference between gold and, and stone is if you will let the word of God be the ultimate truth in your life, even if it's hard, even if you disagree at first, it's a process to say yes to God and no to our preconceived notions. That's a huge distinguishing mark. These two men that were against Timothy and Paul and against the good word that they were preaching, they lacked submission to God's leaders as an authority over them. They came to a theology that they could not accept, came to a teaching from the word of God that they did not agree with because they wanted to be in charge. They were proud and refused to submit themselves. Instead of letting God's word change their mind, they hardened their hearts. 
And because they hardened their hearts, they tried to change the minds of other people. They set up a camp on this topic, that the resurrection has already happened. Just for clarification, they're not referring to Jesus' resurrection, but to the great resurrection of all the dead and the judgment that will happen on the last day. The wonderful thing to remember here is, is the beginning of verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, all of us come from different backgrounds, from different sins in our life that we have been slaves to. And all the baggage that can still remain even after believing in Jesus. With the Holy Spirit's help and prompting, sometimes through the use of pastors and elders that are charging us, that are telling us the difficult things we need to hear, we can choose to clean out all of that wood and stone and baggage in our life and get rid of all that sin that lingers so that we can become honorable vessels and we can be ready and useful for every use of the master. There is hope. You do not have to remain a vessel of dishonorable use. Bend your knee to King Jesus again and again when confronted with the sin in your own life, when confronted with the ideas and thoughts that do not reflect the word of God, and he will cleanse you. How do we perform that cleansing in God's household? Paul anticipates and answers with the solution. He will give us what we need to stop pursuing and things to start pursuing and some things to have nothing to do with. So some things to stop pursuing. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. The word here for passions in the Greek means pleasures, worldly, carnal pleasures. I don't have to do much explanation as to what that is. Turn on nearly any television, and that's about all you see in society today. The question then is, how do we stop pursuing these youthful passions? The answer obviously lies in the rest of the passage. To flee when we are tempted to seek after those worldly pleasures, whether it be on our phones or the television or even on billboards on the side of the road, we need to flee them. That is to put down the phone, turn off the TV, or find a new way to get wherever you're going. Fleeing is not staying close to where the youthful passions lie. You may have to delete certain apps, throw away certain movies, or take any other of extreme measures to distance yourself from these sins. However, Paul is using a comparison. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, hope, and peace. It's not enough to simply flee. You must pursue the right things. If we are passionate about pursuing God and the word of God and the people of God, that is a good passion, a good desire, and a good pursuit compared to the youthful passions that bring mainly destruction. But of course, that's only the beginning of the verse. The second part is almost more important, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is not an endeavor to be taken alone. It is very clear that as we pursue righteousness, that God intends us to do so with those who call upon the Lord. Like you, who are seeking the Lord, who are saying yes to the word and no to the world. Paul is again coming back to the main reason for this portion of the letter to Timothy in verse 23. 
have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies. You know that they breed only quarrels. The problem that he is having with Hymenius and Philtus, quarreling about words and leading others astray. So he addresses it in verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That word gentleness is the same Greek word that is translated as meekness in other places. And it was said of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Now, meek does not mean weak. Actually, it has a very different meaning. It means strength under control. And who better to exemplify that than Jesus? The maker and sustainer of all things, lowering himself to be a man and dying for others. Christ is the ultimate example of how we are to interact with others, both in his meekness and in his power. We have the truth of God. We have the strength of God in our life because of Jesus. And yet when we are evangelizing, telling others about Christ, we do not bring that strength and truth down like a hammer upon their heads. Instead, in meekness, we patiently teach. We give them correction. And then we let the word of God and the spirit of God change their minds and their hearts. This is the only way to have effective evangelism. However, there are times that we must use his power, not as a hammer to destroy other people, but as a scalpel to cut out deceptive theologies or misunderstandings. This is particularly true in church discipline. Just like Paul had to confront Hymenaeus and Philtus, when someone is teaching or leading others away from the Bible's clear teaching, it is the duty of the elders to confront those individuals with the truth, from the word, and with power. We must not tolerate people that would knowingly deceive the body of Christ. However, we must not be quarrelsome, but stick to the gospel And in meekness, allow the word of God to patiently correct our opponents. We have to address the issue at hand, but we don't worry about the outcome. That's God's responsibility. And we need to let God do his work. Now, in the last verse, we have his conclusion. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. Repentance is the key. We have to say no to our preconceived notions and incorrect teachings, and say yes to what the word is plainly saying to us. You see, this battle, it's much bigger than you and I. We have our part to play, that's true, but ultimately God is the one to do to change people's hearts and minds. Satan does not want people to think about the truth. He's trying to lead us away from the knowledge of the truth and does everything possible to keep us from thinking in general. So what does it mean to think or to ponder, to dwell? Well, the verb muse comes to mind. In the Greek, it means to think. And if we put the negative A in front of it, you have the word amuse, not to think. 
the purpose of amusement is to keep you from thinking. Satan has done a very effective job of amusing the world. When we are more interested in the football game, the TV show, the video game, movie, or any other distraction in our life, when we are more interested in those than spending time with God's family or his word, then Paul says we are of dishonorable use. And then the snare of the devil. If we are trapped in his snare, then we are doing his will. And I have been just as guilty as anyone in this room. However, this is where the power of Christ comes in. <laughs> Through his life, death, and resurrection, we have been given an amazing gift. When we humble ourselves and submit to God, he will change us from stones of disgrace and despair and dishonor and turn us into vessels of gold. Even being here right now in worship with the rest of the church is a form of pursuing righteousness. You are saying no to sleeping in on Sunday morning or missing the first half of the game, and you are saying yes to Christ. He is turning you into vessels of gold, and God will be able to use you for his honorable work. Let's pray.